bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 26 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we are starting our march toward the end of season one of The Adventures of Superman. This episode, we'll be looking at The Evil Three and The Riddle of the Chinese Jade. And to help me go through these two episodes, I have Bob Fisher with me again. Hey, everybody. Thanks for inviting me back, Mike. Oh, not a problem, Bob. How you been lately? Been really good. I'm looking forward to tonight's episodes. Yeah, I am too. I I think these are, especially The Evil Three, these are some of the best <laughs> of, of season one. Yeah, this The Evil Three may be, I've said this before, but it, it's probably in my top three favorite of the entire series. And probably for different reasons than other people, because of Superman is only in it in the last, you know, few minutes. But, uh, God, what a great episode. It, it, well, he's kind of only in it in the last few minutes, just about every episode. So that, right. that's, that's kind of par for the course. But <laughs> right. just some right. great, some great Perry and Jimmy stuff in that episode. Oh, this this is just some of the best. Some of the best. We'll talk about this later, but you really see the chemistry between... Jack Larson and John Hamilton in this episode. Oh, absolutely. And 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 some of the stuff that that just blows me away about this episode. This is one of the I think the best directed of all of them. And the thing that you're going to see when you look at this and I really encourage you people to to put this on if you've had it and you said, "Well, I've seen it. Yeah, I know which one that is." Well, fine. Sit down when you can really watch it and watch for the little things that really aren't that hard to see. For example, in modern movies and TV shows, if you stay on one character for more than a few seconds on screen, something is, you feel like, ooh, it's too slow. Cut, cut, cut. Things are back and forth. Quick timing. Cut there to this some, guy. Cut to that guy. There are some very long takes in this episode. There are some brilliant, long, long, almost... I don't even know what to call them. They're they're uh, Hitchcockian <laughs> in their in their direction of this particular episode, particularly even this opening scene. But multiple scenes between Jack Larson and John Hamilton, where it is a long, long camera scene, no cuts. The right. camera will follow them back and forth, doing dialogue, working props, lighting changes, emotions. It's just absolutely an incredible mystery thriller it's just what a just ugh, i get chills thinking about it it is and it's funny you mentioned hitchcocky and uh, i was watching the commentary on the evil three today ah, uh-huh. i believe it was chuck harder who did the commentary and he said and he kind of amused that jack larson might have had a good career doing hitchcock films had his career gone that way Oh, he could have. He could have. And I think we see this. If anybody ever questions this series and thinks, oh, it's just corny, over the top, bad acting and blah, blah. No, you haven't watched this. You need to sit down and watch this 
episode. I think this episode stands up as well today as it did then. And again, I watched it, literally, I watched it less than a few hours ago. Right. Uh, and I, my plan was just to have it on because I'm really familiar with these and right. go around doing other things and listen to it and fill the house up with the sounds of the adventures of Superman. And literally, when that first scene started... I sat down and just didn't get up until it was over. Right. Everything about this episode is just done so well. And then after that, we'll move on to the riddle of the Chinese Jade, which is a little more straightforward. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even know, know if I'd call it a mystery, just involving a stolen statue. But that episode, a little more straightforward. And that, that particular episode is a, a lot of fun. And it's got one of my favorite lines in the series. Yeah, it's very typical of the first season, but done in a really nice way. And some of the best usage of stock footage in both this and another couple that we'll be talking about later. But there's some great New York Chinatown stock footage scenes of actual New York Chinatown cars and the neon lights and the stuff. And it's in black and white, of course, but even those scenes, you can almost visualize them in color when you see some of those scenes. A fairly decent Phyllis Coates episode. Yeah. Uh, the Chinese Jade, she's in it most of the time. It's a uh, really good Clark and Henderson episode. Really good Clark and, and Henderson. And this is kind of the episode where Henderson gets tired of being run ragged by the by the Daily Planet. Yeah. Yes. He, and, he starts mouthing back to them, and it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really good scenes. And as you mentioned earlier, a classic line. And I, I think it's a fun episode to watch. And the guy who played the young um, Wong, Wong, yes, the Chinese boy who played the young newlywed or about to be the right. guy who helped the bad guy steal the statue. I forgot his real name. Actually went on to do other things. I have seen him in other shows, and and uh, he was on a couple of westerns TV shows at the time. His name so, is Victor Sen Young. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, he did go on, I think, to have a a decent career playing that kind of character. I mean, similar to what he was. I mean, Hollywood in the 50s is still, you know, kind of uh, stereotypically racist in many ways. And I don't think they intentionally meant to do any bad stuff there. Because this, this particular episode is all about that area of Metropolis, the Chinatown of Metropolis. And I thought they handled a lot of the stuff really well. I was... It's just a really good show. It is. So we will take a quick break right now. I'll play a promo, and then we'll come back with The Evil Three. Hang around, folks. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it. From 1938 to the present day, from the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons... Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years, and if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com I'm Jack Larson, and the fourth annual Superman Festival continues. The next episode we might expect to see on Halloween rather than on Thanksgiving. 
The setting is a spooky old fishing inn where Jimmy and the chief not only discover things that go buzz in the night, but things that go bump in the night as well. Directed in 1951 by Tommy Carr, The Evil Three features two of the most distinguished veteran screen actors I had the opportunity to work with. Jonathan Hale, famous for his role as Mr. Dithers in the Blondie series, and Reese Williams of the memorable How Green Was My Valley. This episode was considered to be the most chilling of all the Superman adventures and was responsible for a lot of goosebumps. So kids, get ready. What spooked your mom and dad many years ago might just do the same to you. Have fun watching The Evil Three. Welcome back, folks. And we're going to get right started with The Evil Three. Original broadcast date was January 23rd, 1953. It was written by Ben Peter Freeman and directed by Tommy Carr. Guest cast included Jonathan Hale as Colonel Brand. This will be the first of two appearances by Hale in the series. He will most famously return in season two in another top episode of the series, Panic in the Sky, as the Professor. I believe his name is Professor Roberts, I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and talk about great acting. He is. I, I didn't even realize. And how many times have I seen these shows? I mean, literally thousands of times I've watched these shows. And I didn't realize until a year or two ago when I, well, probably a little longer, when I got the DVD set and started looking the stuff up, that that actor who played the colonel was also the scientist in Panic in the Sky. Right. It blew me away. I didn't believe it. I read it and thought, no, that's not true. I don't believe that. You could have also put him in a white suit. He could have been Colonel Sanders. Could have been Colonel Sanders. Yep. All right. I'm going to butcher this name. Next, we have Reich Williams. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Mm. As Macy Taylor. And Cecil Elliott as Elsa. Uh, is she terrific or she, what? She is terrifically frightening. Frightening. And a stage actress who most of her career did some more TV after this and did a few movies after this. But primarily, she was a, uh, a well-known stage actress at the time. All right. So now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Daily Planet editor Perry White and cub reporter Jimmy Olsen are on a rather unsuccessful fishing trip together. It's 4.30. You realize we've been fishing since 8.30 this morning, and what have we got? Not a thing. I should have known better than to bring you along. Don't blame me. I did everything you told me. And a lot of things I didn't tell you. A fishing rod's not a baseball bat. You've got to handle it gently. And you can't go tramping through a trout stream like a bull in a china shop. You've got to be quiet. How can I be quiet with mosquitoes eating me up alive? Ah, mosquitoes. When I was your age, a few mosquitoes didn't bother me. Are we going home? No, we're not going home. I came here to catch fish. And I'm going to catch fish if it's the last thing I do. Besides, it'll be dark in an hour, and I don't like to drive at night. You mean we're not going to do any more fishing today? Too late. Oh, that's good. Gone mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, mosquitoes. Is that all you can talk about? I quit talking about them if they quit biting me. Look. Don't bother me. Nothing, nothing. Uh, Why do they print the names of these places so small? Mosquito? Pay attention to what you're doing. See what I mean? Come on, pick up yourself. Let's get going. You raise the devil with me when I complain about the mosquitoes. When they start biting you, it's a different thing. Boy. You call this fun? It'll be a sad day when I go fishing again. Nothing but mosquitoes and wading through brush and 
Perry wants to stay the night at the Hotel Bayou, where he can catch bass from the property stream. Meanwhile, at the hotel, Colonel Brand has his sword poised to attack Macy Taylor. The two men fight as Elsa, an elderly woman confined to a wheelchair, watches from the top of the second floor stairs. She is laughing maniacally while the two men trade punches and break objects. The Hotel Bayou is in a sorry state when Jimmy and Perry arrive. Debris from the brawl between Macy and Brand is all over the place. Perry remembers staying there seven years ago when Macy's uncle, George Taylor, owned it. We'll get back to that name later. <laughs> Macy claims that George had drowned and tries to dissuade the pair from staying the night. Now you sign the register, Jim. I want to get something from the car. Got a pen? There's something I ought to tell you first. We ain't had no guests in this hotel since Uncle George got drowned. That's on account of his ghost is haunting this place. You say you saw your uncle's ghost? Seen it a couple of times. It ain't pretty. I, uh, I, I think I'd better wait for Mr. White before I register. The editor is suspicious of Macy Taylor. He seems to recall that George had disappeared. To, to confirm this, Perry calls Clark Kent from his, from his car's radio telephone. Clark is ordered to discover what he can about the elder Taylor's death and contact the chief in an hour. In the meantime, in spite of Jimmy's fears, Perry still insists that they stay at the hotel. Why do you want to stay in this crummy dump, chief? That's the trouble with you. What? You haven't got a nose for news. You don't smell stories. You, you mean you think there's a story in this old fleet bag? Macy Taylor lied to us. You heard him say that stream was fished out. And we both saw big bass jumping when we crossed that little bridge. And that nonsense about a ghost, he told you, that was to scare you. Scare you away. Why? I don't know why, but I'm going to find out. I seem to remember that uncle of his... Well, was a, was a bit eccentric. Didn't trust banks. Used to keep all his money hidden somewhere. What is it, Jim? What's the matter? Look. What? A face. Like a ghost. The face in the, in the picture downstairs. What? His uncle's. What are you talking about? There's nothing out there. I tell you, I saw a face. You're tired. That lunatic's upset you. Go to bed. Jimmy has seen what appears to be the ghost of George Taylor on two occasions. The spectral form even slapped him in the face while he slept. Chief! Chief! Get away from me! Jim! Jim, what's the matter? Mr. White. What is it, son? What happened? Did you see it? See what? It went to your room. What did? The ghost. Oh. Now, son, you know there are no ghosts. They don't exist. Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, I never thought there were. Well, there aren't. Now, you've been dreaming. I wasn't. Honest, I wasn't. I saw him. He was right there. He went through the connecting doors into your room. There's nobody out there. That's where he went. 
You didn't come into my room. And these walls are solid. Red Caesar's ghost. Golly! Yeah, hold this. The cub reporter has also heard the insane laughter of Elsa echoing through the hotel's corridors. Jimmy and Perry are now investigating things further. They discover a ramp that leads to a subterranean level where a skeleton is chained to a wall. Perry seems to know who was held captive, but before he can reveal this to Jimmy, Macy and Colonel Brand attack him and Brand is disposing of Perry's car while Macy prepares to kill his new prisoners. Clark has not gotten a response to his call to Perry. Worried, he becomes Superman and flies to the hotel bayou. Meanwhile, Perry and Jimmy have regained consciousness and managed to get back to their room. At this point, Elsa reveals herself to them and explains Macy's Taylor's true motives. Macy's fixing to kill you. What goes on here? Who are you? Macy and the Colonel are after the money. They won't never find it, though. <laughs> Only one knows where it is. What money is this? The money Macy's Uncle George hid. There's enough to make us all rich. You help me. You can keep half. She's crazy, Chief. Now let's get out of here. Wait, wait. What happened to Macy's uncle, do you know? Macy killed him, trying to make him tell where he hid the money. He chained him to the wall down in the cellar and let him die. That's his skeleton you saw. I thought so. Macy scared all the guests away after his uncle died. <laughs> Made out like old George Taylor's ghost was haunting the hotel. It was only him fixed up. <laughs> But he couldn't never scare me and the colonel. Can't we know what he'd done? That's why he was trying to kill me and the colonel. The colonel was trying to kill him. <laughs> it's only when someone comes, like you folks, they make out like they don't hate you one another. Please, Chief, let's go. Wait, where is this money? Yeah, he won't steal it and leave me here. Of course not. However, Macy Taylor has pushed Elsa's wheelchair down the ramp to the basement, leaving her with Jimmy and Perry hidden behind the same rock where bunches of $100 bills are stashed in a strongbox. Superman has met Colonel Brand, who is leading him away from the hotel. Neither Brand nor his sword are a match for Superman. Wait a minute. I heard a scream. Oh, I didn't hear nothing. Just how far is this cottage? You might as well know now. There is no cottage. The man and the boy is dead. You're lying. And you're going to be dead, too. Where are they? Tell me. At the hotel, but they're dead. Where are they? Tell me where they are, I'll break every bone in your body. Behind the rock. Where? He returns to the hotel to fight Macy and to free Elsa, Perry, and Jimmy. The police have captured the evil three with the mad Elsa laughing that nobody got the money. <laughs> nobody got the money! Nobody! <laughs> well, that does it. Come on, Jim. The sheriff is giving us a ride to the railroad station. How about letting me fly you back to Metropolis? Golly, could you? Oh, no. Not me. No, you either, Jim. We've had enough excitement for one night. Could I, uh, take a rain check on that flight sometime, Superman? Sure thing, Jim. Any time at all. Golly. <laughs> oh, so, Bob? Good job. What'd you think of this one? Uh, what well, we, we already know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one of the best of all of them. And in the TV Guide, by the way. 
This is not listed as a kid's show. This is not listed as action-adventure show. It's listed as a crime mystery drama. And this one fits the bill, particularly in that mystery drama part. And, of course, we've got the crime. You've got murder. You've got robbery. You've got, yeah, you got so much, so much. And I'm going to tell you something. As a little kid, holy moly, did this thing scare the bejeebies out of me. This, I, 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 I can still bring chills up on the back of my neck, let the hair stand up, just visualizing that old woman being pushed down the, the stair ramp in her wheelchair. As, that, because it's coming right at you yeah. in the camera. That gave me chills four hours oh, ago when I watched it. Yes, it's coming right at you. She's screaming while the guy, Macy, that pushed her is up on the top smiling. And just incredible. And that smile is... Oh, demonic, devious, mean, great acting all the way around. I think you can even tell my voice, everything about me. I just, I cannot say enough good stuff about this episode. Is it a typical Superman episode? I don't know. It's, it's not really even typical for this series. Um, but in a way it is in the first season, this is kind of golden age Superman. This is street level crime. This it's is mystery. Very golden age Superman. Yeah, it's golden age. He comes in and he's throwing guys around. He's fist fighting. He's hitting them full steam. And something else that happened in several of these episodes in the first season, which didn't happen after that, when Superman shows up and the Colonel does it too, he's looking at him like, I don't know who you are. Right. And that happens uh, several times in the first season. And particularly here where, you know, uh, and another one we talk about later, actually, that we're going to talk about. Who's the guy in the circus suit? Right. So uh, very interesting. But this episode, I mean, we could almost go through this sucker scene by scene because it gets you right from the beginning. I, I really can't say enough how really top-notch professional this entire episode is from every angle of it. The writing, the directing, the production, the lighting, the camera work, the dialogue, the way these two, particularly John Hamilton and Jack Larson, this is their episode. If you ever want to see these two actors interact as those two characters, if you want to see perfect Perry White with a perfect Jimmy Olsen, this is is the episode. You're seeing Perry White, the news hound. The reason this guy becomes the editor of the biggest metropolitan newspaper is because of this very thing. Right away, things are wrong. Things aren't lined up like they're supposed to be. And instead, like a normal human would say, "Uh, this is a real dump. This is run down. This even looks dangerous. Let's get the hell out of here. Perry White, like Lois Lane, that we will know get to know a, la- uh, a little later. Right. But Perry White says, no, you young whippersnapper, even though he doesn't call him a whippersnapper, right. young man, there's a story here, and I'm going to find it. But and, there is a point in the middle of the episode, after they're attacked in the cellar, that they do decide. Yeah, time, time to get it's out. It's time to get out <laughs> it's of here. time to get out. They got the story. But now they know it's life and death, right? right. Now they know it's serious. We got to get out of here. And, and then the old lady shows up with the gun and right. says, Nope, not so, not so fast. Uh, Just, there is so much goodness in this one episode, but I really do think if, if you really want to see John Hamilton and Jack Larson showing their talents as real actors, then this, I can't think of a better episode than this. There are long takes. And when I say long takes, I literally mean the camera turns on 
they do their bit and the camera shuts off and goes to a different scene entirely. It's not four, five, six, seven cuts of a scene being edited together. No, you it, see that in the first scene there together. The very first scene there together. Yeah, that, that's a long scene. They're dealing with fishing poles, uh, mosquitoes. They're fiddling with that map. That's all, all, that's all one take. And the stuff they have to do with the lines they have to say and the short amount of time they were given to learn and do this stuff. I mean, we're talking in their eyes minutes, practically. They, uh, they didn't have this script more than a day or two before they had to show up on the set and perform it. And this was also one of the later episodes. It was one of the last two episodes. This, was the, this was the last. Well, I think they filmed this one at the same time they were also filming scenes for Superman on Earth. Uh, oh, that's they, right. Superman on Earth was last. Right. They shot two or three episodes simultaneously during the first season, and that became a, a trademark of how they shot throughout the rest of the, the whole series. They would be working literally on two or three episodes simultaneously. Sometimes the actors didn't even know. I mean, they just know, Lois's office, say these lines. Right. And while you're in Lois's office, okay, now go to page 53 and say those lines. Right. And now go to another and say those lines. And then those were three different episodes that those Lois Lane bits would be edited in in the right spot. Some of the first ones, this one, some of the Tommy Carr directed episodes were done a little more like theater. Theater's the wrong word, but it was more of a movie drama linear shooting, but shot more like a small what we used to call a, a grade B, a short. It was a short, right. a movie short. It was still done with movie techniques. One camera, not multiple cameras like Lucy and Desi Lou would do much later, but one camera, you shoot it. If we need to take another take, if I need to do close-ups, you come back later, we're going to do all the close-ups. Right. But all of this, just sit and watch it folks, and you will actually pay attention to if there's any hard cuts. When does the scene change quickly from here to here? And you'll notice in many of the scenes, <clears throat> we've talked already about the very first scene there together, right. but there's another scene when after Jimmy sees the ghost up in his bed after they go to bed, where both Jimmy and then Perry leave their room, walk out into the hall, right. and they're carrying stuff, and the light changes with them. And remember, it's all in black and white. So everything has to take that into consideration. And even it, the scene right before that, where Jimmy gets woken up by Elsa's laughing. Yes. He's walking around, looking up, looking down the stairs, looking from room to room. And then Perry comes out, sends him back to bed. That's all. That's all. Oh, that's at least two minutes in one take. Yeah, exactly. So it's done so well. So brilliantly. And that's why I think when anybody ever says, oh, this is Superman, oh, I just can't get into it. It's just a kid's show. Okay. Seasons five, season six pointed directly at children. Okay. And there's still some good episodes in there. But the first season was not pointed at children. And I'm not sure that any of the directors or writers or anybody in this particular episode had a single child in mind no. other than this will scare the little kitties. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, if I remember correctly, because I listened to the commentary too, but not recently, but I think they right. even mentioned that the first time this aired before it went into reruns, they cut one of the skeleton scenes out yes. of the basement. They cut the shots of the skeleton out. 
out of the basement because they thought that would be too scary for kids. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, because as soon as if that first skeleton scene is cut, if you cut that and you leave the rest, that skeleton's there when Jimmy and Perry walk around the other steps or there during the fight scene. Right. So the skeleton is there. If you were going to cut anything, that woman coming down the steps is is the scariest point in I, this. I think they cut. I think he said they cut that too. Because I always remember it being there. I never remember this this episode without that in it. Well, according so, to the commentary, Harder said that they put it back when it went syndi- when it went syndicated in the sixties. Oh, okay, okay. But when it aired in nineteen fifty three, they took it all out. Okay, because what happened was in 53, the shows aired for the first time, of course, but throughout the 50s in the summer, they would show the reruns of these shows. So they did have a rerun life. The first, you know, even back while the new shows were still airing in the late 50s, these early shows would be showing in the summer and in rerun certain spots, which was another, you know, it's among the first TV series to do that to actually have reruns because they were filming it and they were keeping them right where so many of these shows were shot on kinescope or shot on other ways or the film was just reused it was, right. you know they just they couldn't keep it so yeah. we really really need to consider ourselves lucky as right. superman fans that these suckers exist particularly the first two seasons which were black and white there were there was discussion when they decided to, in the 60s, rerun them, to not even rerun the first two seasons because they were black and white and the color of, you know, Batman 66 was on. Everything was all bonanza. Everything was big, bright, garish color. And they really talked about not re-releasing the black and white episodes. And I just think, what a a loss that would be. You would not only be losing this great noir series of the first season, but you'd be losing two or three of two of the best of the episodes entire season in that second season with uh, Noel Neal. So anyway, see what happens? You get me on this little tent and I go, right, oh, shiny little Superman over here. Bob, talk about it. But you see my point. I get so excited about this episode because it has everything in this one episode that makes this first season, I think, a must-see for anybody who calls himself a Superman fan. Right. I think one of the things I want, other point I want to make about and bring it a little bit back here to, to the evil three is that on that same level that if you were going to show someone a reason that this Superman series is worth watching as an adult. I would even tell kids right now, be, you know, if you have little kids, uh, be careful showing this one. You'll have to know your own child for that, but it will give little kids nightmares. That woman, that scene with skeleton in the thing is scary. And then to add to the scare, once Jimmy and Perry are down there and they start to leave, the Colonel and Macy realize they're down there. They go down there. And there's a fight between, and this is, I think, the only fight that I can remember that involved John Hamilton. Where, yeah, I, th- I think so. Where he actually had to do some physical work in this one. And there's at one point he actually falls in the back. Right. And they did keep it in the guy, you know, pretends to hit him to knock him out. But then the, the scene, and again, we're talking pretty much one long take yeah. in this battle that has to take place around these steps, around all that stuff. And then the camera pulls back and looks at the wall where the large shadows on the wall. 
that reminded me a lot of the Fleischer cartoons. Yes, exactly. They, they did a lot of that with the uh, not showing what was happening, but yeah. showing the shadows. Exactly. And that's a great technique for showing off-screen violence right. without actually showing the violence. Because even on the shadows, hitting that you could be four feet away from him and look like you just hit him right on his head right. because of the shadow. And they did that so well, and the use of sound, the use of the way they did the lighting, and long takes. It just really pulled the, uh, the mystery. It pulled the anxiety. It pulled the spookiness just right up to the top. And Larson, Jack Larson's facial expressions are just incredible. And John Hamilton having to do what he did, using the props, using everything at his disposal— the man knew what he was doing. And we see a little bit of a different attitude between Perry and Jimmy in this one. Perry is not the, he is gruff. I mean, he's, right. gruff. he's Perry, but you get the feeling he has a genuine concern for young James Olsen. You know, he calls him Jim a couple times. Jim, Jim, wake up. He never, yeah. he never once calls him Olsen. I don't think. I don't think he does either. I think he does call him and Jimmy or James. Jim, Jimmy's calling him chief throughout. Not one. Don't call me chief. Not one. Not one, don't call me chief. Yeah. I, you know, they were just really, really terrific in this thing together. I so just, just from what we've seen of Jimmy in the first season, I get the feeling he doesn't have a ton of family. Does not have a ton of... That, that, that Jimmy doesn't have a lot of family. Family. Yeah. He's got his mother. Right. That we've seen once. He In the Haunted Lighthouse, he went to visit uh, Aunt and, Louisa, who he hadn't seen in 20 years. Who he was supposed to have, he thought, uh, a cousin. Right. But that all turned out to be a lot. You know, it it just always seems as though Perry has taken an interest in him. Yes. And yeah. in this episode especially, he comes off as a bit of a father figure. Mm-hmm. Almost, almost, almost like an uncle, you know. Right. The first season, you know, it's like dad and the kid on a fishing trip. Yeah. It's obvious they were friendly. Right. Perry is lecturing him about how to use the fishing pole as not a baseball bat. You know, you know. <laughs> right. You know, I've had similar, like our four foot above ground pool has been dormant for a few years because, you know, Haley's really too, uh, too small for it. Mm-hmm. But we, so we, ha- we've got some frogs in there and, you know, Haley, Haley likes going to see the frogs and all that. Right. And, you know, in the same vein of Perry telling Jimmy that the rod is not a baseball bat. One time we were looking at him, she got really upset because she made a lot of noise and the frogs went away. Mm-hmm. You, know, you got to be quiet mm-hmm. and sneak up on them. Don't want to scare them. Right. Yeah, it's it's a learning lesson, and yes. that's the part in this I really liked. There was another part where, in that very same first scene, there with Perry's, <clears throat> you know, fixing his fishing rod, and right. he's given the map now to Jimmy, and uh, well, you know, and Jimmy says, "Oh, found it!" Right, and he points to it and shows it. Perry just says, "Don't show me. Tell me where right. is it." And all of in that scene where Jack Larson has to work with the map and the falling fishing right. poles and all of the other stuff and still say believable lines about where they are and how they're going. And then this wonderful tagline when Perry finally gets bitten by a mosquito. By the mosquito, yeah. And slaps it and says, all right, let's go. And he says, fine for you. Yeah, great. Mosquitoes get me, no big deal. One mosquito bites you, right. and it's time to go. And you know and what? That's something terrific. I could see a kid saying, saying Absolutely. Today. Absolutely. Everything about this first scene is believable and real. It's just terrific. You know, this relationship that we see with Jimmy and Perry, that really or obviously won't happen. You won't see this again for 40 years. 
right. really reminds me of the relationship Perry had with Lois Clark and Jimmy and Lois and Clark, mm-hmm. where he, where yeah, he he was the boss, but he was also giving them some. He was giving them life advice, whether it was good or bad, was up for grabs. But he cared about them on a personal level, in addition to a professional level. Right. He right. wasn't just the boss; he was right. their friend as well. Great shades of Elvis. So, I wouldn't have even walked into this hotel. <laughs> <laughs> the hotel by you. The yeah. sign is falling off. There's trash everywhere. The place yeah. is a mess. You go in. The remains of the fight are still there. Yeah. And. They either don't notice or they ignore it. Uh, it's just so good. So if we get to George Taylor. Oh, yeah, George Taylor. Where have we and, heard that name before? Uh, I think most old-time Superman fans will know that there used to be a paper in the Golden Age before the Daily Planet, yep. and its editor was not Perry White. It was George Taylor. Now, this is the kind of kind of thing where I wish I had John M. Wilson. The good old now. Daily Star. Because... How did I don't know how the change happened in comics? <laughs> Was it, it just happened? It just yeah. happened. Right? I think, it, yeah, it might have actually come again from the radio. Right, it did. I'm not, but I, I'm not. But when it, sure. when it was integrated into the comics, how did that happen? Was it just all of a sudden they were at the Daily Planet? Oh yeah, there was no explanation. There was there wasn't like oh Perry and Lois decided to you know go across town now and work for the Daily Planet. Right. There was no in comic explanation for George Taylor disappearing, the Daily Star disappearing and so, the Daily like, Planet and Perry White appearing. Like in this episode, like in the comics, George Taylor just disappeared with no uh yeah, explanation. I found yeah. that kind uh, of a neat parallel. Whether yeah. it was intentional or not, I don't know. Exactly. I now, like the other idea writers, that George Taylor disappeared. You know, I can think of a million reasons not to stay at this hotel. I can't think of one to reason to stay. I'm ready to get out of there. Well, there's one reason. Yeah, for the story. That's it. If you're a newspaper man, there's a story. This is why you don't go on vacation with your boss. You don't want you don't <laughs> want your vacation to become a working holiday. Right. Well, you probably got a raise out of it. Well, I don't know. You'll get oh, a raise in a few the, weeks yeah. at the end, uh, out yeah. of the human bomb incident. Right. But that's for another time. Finally see Clark again. Or for the yeah. first time, really. You know, I feel First bad. For, I feel bad for Clark in this scene. I hate when the phone rings when I'm leaving. Yep, get ready to leave, and the phone rings, and well, Clark's a good guy. He goes back and answers the phone, and actually answers the phone. Yeah, I, I would. Hey, kept, Chief, how you doing? Yeah, I would have kept on walking. <laughs> but yeah, and this is where he calls in the disappearance of George Taylor. Well, you'd have missed a good story. Yeah, I would have. Right. The thing about people on TV is they love their jobs. Right. They don't. Their job is their life. It doesn't matter. It could be 7 p.m., 8 p.m., 9 p.m. when he's ready to leave there and go wherever he's going to go, maybe be Superman and do a patrol or something. But so many times on TV, the personal life is totally secondary. Right. It's Of course they're going to go on vacation together. It's right. Of course they are. And one thing this show has been kind of consistent about is that Clark leaves the office around 8. Mm-hmm. In the stolen costume, he told Candy that he'd be home around 8.30. Right. And when he's leaving, Perry mentions that it's eight o'clock. Right. It's nice that they're a little bit consistent about that. So, wonder if they're telling the rest of us lazy people who just work nine to five that yeah. we're not working hard enough. Not that I work nine to five; I haven't done that in a while. Right. But. So, what did you think of uh, of the ghost <laughs> that shows up at the window? Well, on an eight-inch black and white fuzzy screen, it probably looked really spooky. Right. On a forty-inch high <laughs> def, it looked pretty stupid. <laughs> but again putting myself back as the little kid on the right. black and white TV and the look on Jimmy Olsen's face. 
Good job. I first saw this episode when I was a kid. It was on one of those Thanksgiving Superman festivals. Right. And for some reason, the copy I had was really horrible. So I don't think I ever actually saw the ghost. Oh, okay. Or the skeleton. Hmm. Because my copy was so bad. For some reason, it must have been the tape. Until I got it on DVD. Hmm. And you can see everything now. Yeah, glorious DVD. Yeah. Yeah. Me Even see- a springboard. We get to see a springboard. Yeah, we, saw, we do see a springboard in this episode. They are really having a very long hour. Because a lot has happened between the time Clark gets the phone call and he calls back. Right. A lot. A lot of has happened in this hour. I mean, Jimmy has gone to bed, got gotten woken up. Woken up by Elsa's uh, maniacal laughing. Yeah, it's almost like as soon as Perry went to his car to do what? Call the planet from his car yep. in 1951. It aired in 53, shot in 51. But, you know, I, maybe that would have been common for newspaper people, especially yeah, the editor of the Daily Planet. Maybe his newspaper people. Although Clark and Lois, when they jump in their cars in the future, I don't think they have car phones. So no. this is probably just Perry's car. And he's going to need a new one. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say so. Yeah. But what I found interesting is that when Jimmy gets woken up the first time, he, he's kind of walking around looking around. Right. Perry asks Jimmy why he's prowling around. What are you doing out here? Golly, you scared me. Why are you prowling around? I heard a woman laughing. You're crazy. No, I tell you, I did. I heard her twice. Now stop this nonsense and get back to bed. I'm waking you up at six in the morning. Now go on. Okay. Good night. Good night. Isn't that what he wants Jimmy to be doing? Hmm. Good point. Good point. Maybe Perry, because this is what I think I was getting ready to, is when you said there was so much that happened between him making the call and then Clark calling him back. Maybe Perry goes out. Remember now the ruse. They're signing in. Right. Perry goes out to make the phone call to Clark or to the Daily Planet. He gets Clark. Inside, the guy, Macy, is trying to scare Jimmy into leaving. Oh, he succeeded. And he succeeded. Jimmy's ready to leave. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Then Perry comes back in and signs the register, gets his glasses out, then right. gets his own pen out, signs the register. And I'm thinking probably right then, Perry's thinking, we'll get to the bottom of this story in the morning. Right. Let's get to bed now. So that's why I think when the scene changes, we go upstairs right. and there, and Jimmy's in bed. And comes out to look is because Perry probably said, because remember now he's unpacking the first part upstairs. We right. see Perry doing what I guess adults do. They are unpacking their suitcase and actually putting the stuff in the, in the hotel drawers and stuff. Right. And he's telling Jimmy to get ready and go to bed. And there's a story here. And he's telling him right then there's a story here. Right. So all of these scenes that take place here in the next uh, five, 10 minutes, upstairs just terrific stuff back and forth back and forth the ghost coming here jimmy seeing it the ghost waking him up that was creepy that was creepy (laughs) that was creepy slapping and yeah that was creepy and the ghost standing over there and running away that was more creepier than the ghost at the window yeah i think so too i think so too i think that was creepier and and then disappearing as soon as he walks out the hall perry white comes in because jimmy is screaming so perry white comes in and he didn't see the ghost leave now, Jimmy is still thinking it's a good ghost. Oh, no. Right. This time, though, Perry is a little calmer with him. The first yes. time he was like, all right, you're being stupid. Go to bed. Right. The second time he was showing a little more concern. Like, right. Calm down. You know ghosts aren't real. 
Exactly. You know? And in Perry's mind right now, he's almost thinking maybe Jimmy did see something, but Perry has obviously, he knows there's no ghost, but right. if something was in here, it could have only passed me if it went this way. There's only one way back into your room. I came in this way. That door's closed. He had to come by me and he didn't. Right. And that's, I guess, when they go both back out in the hall and. Well, no, Jimmy tells Perry that it, the ghost goes into his room through the connecting doors. Right. But Perry, for some inexplicable reason, goes in the hallway. <laughs> All right. And then he comes back and Jimmy reminds him, no, he went that way. And then that's when they find the wall. Right. They find the, 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 false, the, the false wall with the, to the basement. As Perry puts his foot through it. Yeah. Great. His sneaker attired foot. Yes. Perry wearing some really nice little Converse sneakers there, it looks like. Yeah. I did notice that. Well, you don't see Perry White wearing sneakers very often. Uh, only time I remember him ever wearing. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> yeah, just such a terrific uh, little scene. So then Perry, they find the they find the door. They find the door. They find the ramp. They find the skeleton. And now they're saying, "Let's. We need to get out we, of here." We now. need. We need. A, <laughs> yeah. Now, okay, they've, they've, now. They've, they've already been attacked. In the, they've been attacked in the basement. Yeah. They're they're packing up. They're they're getting they're getting the hell out of there. You know, and that's when they encounter. Elsa, you know, yeah. before we get on to what happens here, you never really know what the relationship between these three people are. No. What are you screaming about? I heard you down there. My ears are still good. You're fixing to kill that old man and the boy. What's your business, you meddling fool? I don't want no more on my conscience. I've got enough now with what he did. Oh, leave her be. She can't get out of that chair. Those two saw the skeleton. we got to get rid of them. Murderers! That's what you are! Murderers! Shut up, you old witch! Get rid of their car. Send it over the cliff back in the old quarry. What you gonna do? Get a gun and take care of them. Murderers! That's what you are! You murderers! 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 You, we know that Macy is... The nephew is the of... Nef is the nephew of George Taylor. Of the owner of the... Right, George Taylor of the Bayou. For some reason, Elsa knows where the money is. Right. So they can't do anything to her. Because without her, they have no way to find the money. Without I'm still amazed. They've been in that hotel for how long? And they didn't look behind that big rock with the crowbar sitting beside it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the crowbar <laughs> the crowbar is just sitting there. Yeah. Like, yeah, you'll find the crowbar right next to it. It's like, you know, it's like when you're playing a video game and you can't get somewhere, so there happens to be a ladder nearby. <laughs> and you have to go get the ladder. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a crowbar that you'll need to move that big rock. But, yeah, no, they, they decided not to look there. But obviously they knew about it because that's where the ghost disappeared to. Or at least that's where we're assuming the ghost disappeared to. But, yeah, I really like that fight. But, yeah, and we don't, we, we don't really know who Elsa is, mm -mm. Why, she, why she knows where the money is. Don't know anything about any of these three. Yeah, really. we don't, we, the only thing we really know anything about is Macy and that he killed George Taylor. If any episode of this show was demanding a prequel comic, it's this one. Uh, yeah. I actually like to know a prequel and a sequel. What happened to Elsa when they took her to the hospital? Did they lock her up in an insane asylum because she's nuts? Probably. Was she part of the, the conspiracy to hide the money? If she knew about George Taylor's death, why didn't she report it? They all wanted the money. Exactly. But isn't, isn't there some sort of... Breaking the crime laws are there if you know that somebody else has killed somebody else, but oh, you're yeah. keeping it to yourself because if anything happens to that other guy, then you can go get the money. Well, the problem is she can't get down. Well, she kind of can get down there, but she can't move the rock. Right. 
So she needs somebody else's help to find uh, the money. Gotcha. There you go. And neither, and we have no idea who Brand who Brand is, why he's there. Yeah. Why is the Colonel there? Yeah. Maybe Macy Macy actually did the killing. Yeah, Macy did the killing because Elsa says Macy did the killing because she she's initially against them killing Jimmy and Perry because right, she doesn't right. want any more on her conscience after right. what he did. He did right, and she Macy. And she looks at Macy. And then so she the, spells it out later to Jimmy and Perry that Macy chained him to the wall and let him die. Yeah, interesting. But we have no idea who, where the colonel comes from. He he just happens to show up. Right. He was a resident that saw it all. Right. <clears throat> probably. He was probably a witness. He knew about the money, and uh, maybe Elsa tried to recruit him to find help find the money. That's why they fight all the time. Maybe he has been fighting Macy for Elsa. So, to follow up on, Mario Benessi's a Facebook post from earlier today. Dan DiDio, prequel comic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so she knows where the money is. She knows the money is behind the rock with the crowbar that just happens to be next to it. And we find the money in, in the strong box. And while that's happening, this is when Brand uh, drives Perry's car o- over the cliff, which exploded in a very impressive fireball. Yeah, nice little more stock footage. Yeah. It seemed like every car in the 50s could go over a cliff and explode. Yeah, well, they it, all exploded it, back then. It looks good. Yeah, and nice that's big old car. And I think it's when she gets pushed down the stairs. J- Superman is already uh, dealing with the Colonel, right? And and she, he hears the scream. He hears the scream as he's being shown to the cottage. Right, because before the scream, actually, and before he pushed her, right? Perry and Jimmy are down there in that basement area. Yeah, they have found the money. Okay, <clears throat> but then she cackles. Did you find the money? Yeah. Did you find the money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's creepy. It is. And then she gets pushed down the stairs. And then she gets pushed down the stairs, screams. Superman hears that, says, what was that? Yeah. The colonel says, I didn't hear enough. And he probably, and he probably didn't. Probably didn't. Right. And then foolishly fights with Superman and, of course, loses. Well, they don't spell it out so much in this episode, but it's clear that the colonel has absolutely no idea who Superman is. None, none whatsoever. Didn't have to spell it just by the way he was looking at it. Kept looking at his costume, looking at him up and down, like, what the hell are you? But he saw him land. He saw him fly towards him and and land. And that didn't seem to bother him at all. No. He just took that right in stride. But... It didn't seem to bother Superman that there's an old man looking like an like an 1880s Southern Colonel yeah. brandishing a sword. Yeah, well, that so- that didn't remain a sword very long. <laughs> no, it didn't. It became a stump very quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that line. They're dead, and you're gonna be dead too. <laughs> and then Whoops. Superman just throws him to the side. Whoops! He's and like, then he runs and flies, hits the springboard that yep. we see. We, you know what? I don't care about seeing the springboard. No, me neither. In fact, I now look for them. Yeah. I think just kind of how many of them can I find? Right. And there's several. There's several. Even a few in the color episodes later on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he flies back after the springboard. He and flies it, back to the hotel, and then we see a great fight with Macy and right. Superman. See, you do see Macy running up with the strong box. Ah, and, right, right. And he gets a he gets a shot off. But if you remember when he went to find the gun, mm-hmm. he was searching for ammo. 
Right, he was trying. He, so he must have found one. He must have found one somewhere. Found one. They didn't never show him loading it because he. You're right. He put the shotgun up on the desk. Started looking through drawers for cartridges. Right. Couldn't find it. But then we cut to some other stuff. He comes right. back. He's got the gun. Superman runs in. The first shot comes off. Superman knocks the gun out of his hand. And then. This is very good. This is a very golden age. This is just Superman saying, boom, boom, over the desk, you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Throw him in our alley. And he actually threw him over the counter. That was- he, he threw him over the counter, yeah. I think that was a stuntman, too, for, the, for Macy. I'm sure it was. Yeah, that didn't. I don't think that was actually the actor Macy that got thrown over that. I'm not desk. sure that was. I'm not sure that doing the George was doing the throwing. There, it may know. not have even been George doing the throwing. Yeah, but I, I love that line. Tell me where you are. I'll break every bone in your body. You don't <laughs> see Superman could, doing that very much. No, but that scene right there, you could put a still of that. He's looking large and in charge. Oh, he's standing over the guy. He's got him by his shirt. He's pulling him up. His muscles are rippling and. I'll break every bone in your body. Yes. He says that a couple of times in first, and then he does it again, I think, in the second season in one of the kryptonite uh, yeah. things. It's, this, it's ter- I love it when he actually does that. This is the one where it stands out, though. Oh, absolutely. Because he is large and in charge. Yes. And tell me what I want to know or I'll break every bone in your body. And, and, he, and he tells him. And still gets himself thrown over the counter. <laughs> right, right. He finds them behind the rock. Pulls them all out. And it wasn't until the first time I saw this, until they pulled Elsa out on the stretcher screaming. I thought she was dead. Oh, okay. Well, it it is weird when Superman finally does get there and he goes down into the basement. He looks quickly to his left and there's the turned over wheelchair and Elsa laying beside it. He takes a quick glance at that and then goes in behind the rock to the little cave area and, and checks Jimmy and Perry. And says, oh, thank heaven or right. thank thank the stars, thank whatever, whoever, whatever Superman was thanking at that right. point, that they those two were still alive. So they left the impression that Elsa was gone right? until they carry her out on the stretcher. You're right. And, and then, that's a, that is a creepy scene, though. And I've never done a still shot of that. I'm going to have to do a screen grab of that, of him taking a quick glance to the left, seeing a, the old woman's wheelchair right. turned over and her on beside it. But. He's going to check Jimmy and Perry. Yeah. He'll, and, he'll, he'll get to her in time. Of course. Well, yeah. But Jimmy and Perry are the... And, right. And so we, we get to the end. Jimmy is very quick to take Superman up on the offer to uh, to fly back to Metropolis. Mm-hmm. But Perry's had too much fun already tonight. Yeah. And how, in fact, would that work anyway? How is Superman going to carry both Jimmy and Perry comfortably? Jimmy will like it either way. He could just sit on Superman's back. He can let Superman carry him from his shirt collar. Right. But Perry just wouldn't be dignified. You've got to think of a dignified way to carry Perry back. Yeah, and there really, and there really isn't one. And there isn't one, unless you're going to let him sit in a car or a train or a trailer or a chair. I guess you could get a nice, comfy, cushy chair and then just fly the chair back nice and slowly. But... No, no dignified way to carry the boss back. So I don't know where he's going to find a train in the middle of the night, but right, right. But they're going to go right to the train station. Maybe they'll sleep on the bench or something. How are they going to get to the train station? Well, the cops were there. I think somebody oh, was going to give them a ride to the train okay. station. Right, but uh, yeah, just just God, this is such a great episode. It is such a great episode. And you know what I find always striking about this episode. It starts with such a peaceful shot of the country. Yes. The lake and the trees around it. Yes. You only knew what was coming. Right. 
as far as uh, little things, little little things, if you're uh, if you're into this kind of stuff to look for, there are a couple of shots, particularly when the car is being used, that they use some stage background mats to make it look like it's you know in the woods or on the edge of a mountaintop somewhere, right. and it's really just a painting right behind it, and. At one of those, and I forgot which one it was, it might be the last one before it goes over the mountain, before they cut to the stock footage of a right. car going over the mountain blowing up, you can almost see the shadow of the car on the bottom of the painting, of the right. map painting. A couple of times in some of these episodes, you see stuff like that, yeah. if you look. Some of them I didn't notice, but other people have noticed, and I've seen, you know, and I go back and look at The next time you and I get together to do one of these we'll be talking about Azar the Underworld. Yeah. And in that episode, there's a couple of scenes where the car backs up and in the reflection of the car, you see the tripod and you see the camera and you see the people behind the set. Right. <laughs> Offset. It's pretty funny. Um, but there are things like that all through these. Episodes. Oh, yeah. And they were shot so fast, but minimal problems like that on this particular episode. Tommy Carr took incredible... This is just, again, I go back to it being a little crime drama, but you could literally eliminate the Superman scenes from this and bring in just the detective or, you know, some other character. Right. And the, it would still hold up as just a great, great mystery drama. The fact that it has George Reeves as Superman in it with Jack Larson and John Hamilton playing Perry White and Jimmy Olsen. That's just kind of, you know, the the cherry on the top. That's the icing on the cake. That's the sweetness of this just terrific episode. Can't say enough good stuff. Guys, about there, is, there is, you can't say enough good stuff about this episode. This is one of the great ones. One of the, one of the best of the series. A great character moments, which a lot of these episodes don't have. Right. A lot of these episodes are very plot driven, but this, this episode showed a great relationship between Jimmy and Perry and, you know, I kind of wish we saw more of that throughout throughout the series. Right. You know? And unfortunately, as the series progressed, particularly later on, and I think they even mentioned this in the in the commentary, but I've seen it in several places. John Hamilton and Jack Larson were two entirely different types of actors. Right. John Hamilton was old school. Memorize your lines, show up, hit your spot, say your lines. And move on. And move on. Forget it and go home. Jack Larson is a method actor. And he wanted to be in it. He had to get into the character. He wanted to know, why is Jimmy doing all of this? Why did Perry say that? Why are we doing all of this kind of stuff? And as the series got on later in life, or particularly in the fourth, fifth, sixth episode, in the color episodes later on, Perry actually started treating, uh, or John John Hamilton started treating Jack Larson more like Perry treats Jimmy right. as the young whippersnapper. He would actually say stuff like, you know, if Jack would flub his lines, right. he would say, come on, Larson, get it together. Right. Young people don't know. And he would make little comments like that. And now there's several really good interviews on YouTube from the last two or three years before Jack Larson died. And one of them goes on for about 15 minutes of about just the relationship between Jack and John. Right. And, uh, chokes up a little bit it was it was it's really sweet really sweet 
this was I think this was John Hamilton's best episode. Last time, I think when we did No Holds Barred, that people give uh, John Hamilton a lot of crap. It seemed like he was reading his lines. Mm-hmm. He's not reading his lines here. <laughs> no, no. There's no paper. There's nothing anywhere near him to read lines on no. this one. Mm-mm. And they didn't use cue card. There was nothing. It was these two guys were into it at yes. this point. There are some other really good episodes that feature Perry White. Right. And uh, it's obvious that he knew what he was doing. Yes. Perry White's Big Scoop is is uh, is a good Perry White episode. It is. So, but no, the, the, it's hard to match this one. It's yeah. hard to beat this one. It is. And I think we got this one pretty good. I think. So, <laughs> let's take a quick break. We'll play a promo, and then we'll come back with the Riddle of the Chinese Jade. Hang around, folks. everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted, <laughs> Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones, as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story, this story is, it's it's not bad. It's not great. It's it's like the character himself. It's like, he's just, it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss The Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like you know the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well, it's it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a dead man story. It starts to be a dead man story. It forgets it's a dead man story. And then it comes back to being one. Um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton as we discuss Blackhawk. That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm-hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey as we discuss Superman. There is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast, coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. Yeah.
Welcome back, folks. We're going to move right off, right ahead to the Riddle of the Chinese Jade. Original broadcast date was January 30th, 1953. Writer was Ben Peter Freeman and directed by was Tommy Carr. Guest cast included Victor Sen Young as Harry Wong, Paul E. Burns as Lu Sung, James Craven as John Greer, and Gloria Saunders as Lily Sung. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Our story begins at night in Metropolis. A nervous Harry Wong is meeting ex-convict John Greer in a restaurant. All right. Now let's get this caper straight. We pull this job tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Right? Yes. Don't like these daylight jobs. They're dangerous. But that's the only time. Like I told you, Lusung keeps the Kuan Yin Jade under lock and key in his apartment. But tomorrow afternoon, he's invited some newspaper reporters over. Undoubtedly, he'll show them the jade. That will be the time. All right. I'll bring the pineapple over to your place about 2.30. You sure there'll be no trouble? Trouble? <laughs> Not a chance. It's a cinch. Wong feels the family heirloom rightfully belongs to Sung's niece, Lily, whom he plans to marry. It is for this reason that Harry is working on the theft with Greer. They will use the tunnels under Wong's home and Lu Sung's curio shop in Chinatown. Greer had learned of the underground passages during the Tong Wars from the man who had built the homes and businesses in that section of the city. At 3 p.m. tomorrow, Greer and Harry will perform the heist in broad daylight. The Guan Yin Jade is normally under heavy lock and key. However, Lu Sung wants to give it to a museum, and Daily Planet reporters Lois Lane and Clark Kent will be covering this for the Daily Planet. Isn't she lovely, Mr. Kent? Beautiful, sir. Tea, Miss Lane? Please. I wish you'd call me Lois. Mr. Kent? No, no, thank you. No tea for me. Uncle? Please. Must be priceless. Very nearly. The jade is of gem quality and weighs almost a thousand carats. It has been in my family for more than two centuries. I value it at half a million dollars. But then I didn't ask you here to impress you with my seeming wealth. I have for you what I believe is called in the newspaper profession a scoop of news. A news scoop? Yes, a news scoop. It is this. As a small token of my appreciation for everything this great country, the United States, has done for me and my people, tomorrow at noon, I leave for Washington to present the Kuan Yin to the National Art Museum. How wonderful. This is a scoop. Lu Sung, I'm proud and happy to know you. As Lois and Clark get the story of the Kuan Yin Jade from Lu Sung and Lily, a homemade bomb is thrown through the window of the shop downstairs, leaving Lily to rest on a sofa and the statue in its now opened and unlocked box. Lou, Lois, and Clark go to investigate the damage and cause of the explosion. Harry and Greer have now made it to the Sung residence to take the precious figurine. Unfortunately, there is something that both Harry and Greer had not counted on. Lily has seen them steal the Kuan Yin Jade. The pair must bring Lily with them, thereby making the job more dangerous for everyone involved. Metropolis Police Inspector Bill Henderson has been called to Lou Sung's shop. As he and two bomb squad officers examine the debris, it is discovered that both Lily and the Kuan Yin Jade are missing. Lu Sung, what is this? What happened? A bomb was thrown through the window. That must have been what woke me up. I was taking a nap. I live across the street. This is the manager of my shop, Harry Wong. Miss Lane, Mr. Kent of the Metropolis Daily Planet. How do you do? How do you do? This is a terrible thing. Who could have done it? 
Whoever did it should be drawn and quartered. I think I'll run up and see how Lily is. I will go with you. Mr. Wong, I don't suppose you have any idea who might have done this. If I searched my mind for a century, it would do no good. Lu Song has no enemies. He's the most beloved man in all of Chinatown. Ask any of them. So many beautiful things, broken, shattered. Can you estimate the loss, Mr. Wong? That would be difficult. Fortunately, the one piece of great value, the Kuan Yin Jade, Lu Song has always kept under lock and key in his apartment. However, there is... Clark, come up here quickly. What happened? She isn't anywhere in the apartment. Who isn't? Lily, Lu Sung's niece. When I went downstairs, I left her on the couch. When Lu Sung and I got back up here, she was gone. And so was the Kuan Yin Jade. Henderson believes that Harry Wong is involved somehow, particularly after Clark shows him some bamboo dust that was on Wong's shirt. Look, Inspector, you've got to be reasonable about this. What do you mean, reasonable? If Wong's a suspect, let's question him. What are we playing, cops and robbers? You don't seem to understand there's more to this than just a simple robbery. You're telling me. Look at that mess. I don't mean about the bomb. Lu Sung's niece may be involved. So what? Good grief. When the department doesn't solve a crime in eight minutes flat, the newspaper is yours included. Cut me into ribbons, and now you... Wait, wait. Here he comes. Mr. Wong, I'd like to have you meet Inspector Henderson. How do you do? Mr. Wong is the manager of this shop. Lu Sung obviously is in good hands. I'm going to get the clerks to help me clean up and save what can be saved. Well, uh, can't you use the phone? Well, they have no telephones. I don't know. I think that's all right, Inspector. Mr. Wong will be glad to answer all your questions when you turn. Won't you, Mr. Wong? Most certainly, sir. Okay. Thank you. Did you notice the bamboo dust on his shirt? I wouldn't know bamboo dust and goober feathers. Well, here's some. There's plenty more in that box upstairs. Now, Wong had no opportunity to get any of this stuff on him unless he was carrying that jade figurine. The problem is... How did he get to it? I'll lay you ten to one the girls involved. You could be right at that. Come on, let's go on up. Fifteen minutes have passed since Harry Wong left Lu Sung's shop to supposedly contact other employees. Let's face it, your niece must be mixed up in this. It figures. I will not believe it. And where is she? People just don't disappear. Inspector, I don't see the point in all this. Oh, you don't, eh? Someone tosses a bomb through a window, a statue worth a half a million bucks disappears, and you don't see any point in it. No, wait, just now, a minute. Now, suppose you stick to your reporting, Kent, and I'll take care of the police work. Or would you like my badge? All I'm trying to tell I you is... I know Mr. what you're trying to say. You've already said too much. You talked me into letting that Wong character get out of here. He's been gone 15 minutes. Where does he live? Harry Wong? Yes. Across the street, number 17. Don't anybody leave. I'm not through. Mind if I come with you, Inspector? What good would it do if I did? Harry is back with Greer, arguing over payment for his part in the crime. Lily. Don't touch me. The Kuan Yin belongs to you. You are Lu Sung's only living relative. He had no right giving it to a museum. Thief. No, Lily. The Kuan Yin belongs to you by heritage. I did it only to get money so we could get married and go away. Come on, she'll get over it. You're responsible for this. You said there'd be no trouble, that you'd pay me and go even before the police arrived. Did I know that she was going to be in the room? What did you want to do? Leave her there to tip the cops and spill the whole story? Then pay me and go. I've had enough of this. I'll pay you when I get this thing where it's safe. But you promised to pay me on delivery. That's before she messed up the caper. I've got to get this thing where I can sell it, don't I? What good is it to then me? Then give it back. 
I'll return it and confess. Too late for that now, sonny boy. Give it back! Greer and Harry trade punches as Lily tries to escape with the Guan Yin Jade. Greer knocks both Lily and Harry out, places them in the tunnels and floods them. As water surrounds Harry and Lily, John Greer has made off with the Jade statue. As Inspector Henderson and Clark Kent go to Harry Wong's home across the street from the shop, Greer has returned to the upstairs residence of Lou and Lily's son. With the Jade in hand, Greer has knocked out Lou Sung and taken Lois Lane at gunpoint. Meanwhile, Clark has heard the sound of running water. As Superman, he searches for the fastest route to get Harry and Lily before they drown. People mill about the Man of Steel as he digs through the pavement to the underground passages. Harry Wong and Lily have been rescued successfully, but Lois is still a hostage of John Greer. Don't come in here or I'll shoot her! Get our man. No, we can handle this. Just keep the crowd back. Go ahead, move them back. Right, come on, come on. Don't worry, Miss Lane. We'll get you out of this. He's got the Quan Yin Jade. I'll make a deal with you. No deals. Come out with your hands up. Wait a minute. What's your deal? Don't make any deals with him. He may have killed Lu Sung. Shut up. I'll give up the Jade and let her walk out. If I go free. Is he kidding? Hold it. We'll have to think it over. You've got five minutes. Watch him. Who's the guy in the circus suit? He's Superman. This time he's not so super, is he? Wait and see. As the police distract him, Superman approaches Greer. The Man of Steel knocks out the thief and rescues both Lois and the statue. Harry Wong has confessed his involvement with John Greer in the theft of the Jade. Who told you about the underground tunnel, Wong? Well, I knew about the tunnel because I knew about the trap door in my apartment. But I didn't know where it led. In the days of the Tang Wars, all Chinatown had underground tunnels, Inspector. But I've been living in this house for 16 years and did not know of this one, nor the sliding wall. Who told you where the tunnel led, Wong? Greer. He learned about it from the man who built this house. He also learned that the tunnel could be flooded with water. What did Greer plan to do with the jade statue? Well, he said he'd take it to England and sell it. How much were you supposed to get? I'm too ashamed to even talk about it. I'll write everything out, and I'll sign it. Now, please take me out of here. Sit down, Wong. You'll testify against Greer, won't you? I'll do anything you wish. Anything to make amends to Lu Sung, to Lily, and to myself. Look at me, Wong. I'm going to do something I've never done in 20 years on the police force. I'm going to act as the judge and the jury. I'm not going to arrest you. Why, Inspector, what are you trying to do? Become a Superman? <laughs> Just before we go any further, this episode was based on a radio show like some of the others we've talked about have. An episode of the same name, which aired on February 11th, 1949. So, Bob, what'd you think of this one? I think this is a fine episode. This is a really, really fine episode. It holds together. The writing is good. It tells a nice little story. A very, I don't know what the word is, I guess street-level type crime it's the kind of thing again that the first season does so well they're talking superman just trying to you know solve, solve a solve a little crime solve a little crime and then this time unlike the last episode which featured basically perry and jimmy figuring out the 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 mystery and the crime this one's clark and 
somewhat Lois, but Lois is really not an investigator in this one. She's more of a companion, a friend to uh, Lily. Lily. Yeah, you even see her after the bomb in the uh, in the shop. She excuses herself to go check on Lily. Exactly. Later on, she'll be right in the midst in other episodes of the actual you know story and the crime. This one, the feminine side, she becomes you know to you know to kind of stay with Lily. Where Clark is the detective this time. Clark finds the puzzles and the pieces and the sawdust on the shirt and and does what's necessary. But, you know, you know, we were talking kind of between the, in the break about this, how do you follow evil three? And they followed it with this. And I think it's a fine episode. We see much more of Clark Kent in this episode. Right. And we see Superman doing stuff. That's pretty cool. We see some really cool Superman stuff here. I don't know. Do we see any Perry and Jimmy in this episode? No, not that I can remember. I don't think we see any of the, the, the others. And I think that you see, that is, in some of these early episodes, like we talked before, they were sometimes shooting multiple shows simultaneously. Right. And it wouldn't have surprised me a bit that while George Reeves and Phyllis Coates are over here filming these scenes in, you know, lot 92 or whatever right. of, the, of the background stage set, that Perry and, and Jimmy could be off over there shooting their scenes in the Daily Planet. Right. For for other shows. And, and Tommy Carr is directing one and Lee Sholem is directing the other. Exactly. And that kind of stuff happened quite a bit during this first season and throughout, as I mentioned before, throughout the entire series, where they were constantly working on a quick schedule. Right. But overall, I, I still like this episode. I still give this not that it's not one of the standout great no. that, that you think about when you think of the first season, but I, it's always there for me. I always think about it, but most people do not remember this one at all. Right. But I'll put this one right up against and compare it favorably with any of the rest of the other series or the seasons it holds up we've got some good clark kent detective work we've got some superman stuff flying super speed a little bit crashing through the street with his fists uh, you know so there's some really cool superman stuff going there is. on and and we also get another uh, who's the guy in the circus suit yeah so somebody else who doesn't quite know who Superman is. And a couple pretty good scenes between George Reeves and Robert Shane. Bill That's Henderson. really what, for me, what stands out in this episode. Yeah, I think you're right here. And it's obvious that the two of them are friends. You can almost, you know, I say that because I know for a fact they were friends during this. And right. they would regularly have lunch breaks and spend off-camera time during the day together. But Robert Shane would go home and he had a family by this point. So... Right. You know, he was married and would go home. But during the day and off camera and between scenes and stuff, right. Robert Shane and George Reeves hung out quite a bit. And you see and, that a lot, especially when we're going to talk about next time with Czar of the Underworld. Oh, great episode with the two of right. them working together. There's one scene where Superman shows up in the hotel room. Superman and Inspector Henderson joke around for a minute before getting to business. Before getting to business. It's, it's really a good episode. And, and that's coming up when? Next week? Yep. Cool. Oh, you lucky listeners. Such good stuff coming still. Season one ends very strong. It, I, I think it just starts off incredibly well with Superman on Earth. A great three-part movie in 26 minutes. Right. <laughs> well, 24 edited, I think. But, and finishes off with, well, either... You know, even the unknown people, of course, a movie, great right. movie. But but you're right. Just just a great season. But I'm gonna be good boy. I'm not we're not going down all these little tangent roads here. We're going to focus on 
mystery of the Chinese jade. Because right. we talked forever about the evil three. We did. So let's be kind to the Chinese jade and get into our discussion. What do you say? I'll, I say so. One <laughs> thing that I can see why people, you know, this episode doesn't stand out. This episode does have a lot of long talking scenes. Yes, yes, dialogue. That, that big opening scene with Wong and Greer, you probably could have cut, a, cut half of that out and, and still gotten the point across. Well, again, a lot of these scenes are long and single takes. Right. I don't know if they did it in one take. I doubt that. But what I mean is they didn't take seven takes of it and then edit those seven, the right. best parts of those seven to make one with quick cuts all over the place they took the best of whatever they shot and i guarantee you they didn't shoot more than two or three no you learned your lines you hit your spots you do what you have to do and again we're looking at professional actors for state-of-the-art television at the time 1951 this was as good as it got right and when you look at the other shows even in close to this genre they hold up really well against any other primetime, serious, half-hour drama of the period. And the technology of making this guy fly uh, beats anything that was out at the time. Yes, it does. So, And I think what we're seeing in The Chinese Jade is some really good theater and stage actors doing their parts, memorizing the lines, right. knowing what they have to do. And then the bad guy, Greer. Yeah. Terrific bad guys. Just a sleaze from the get-go. Yeah. When the early scene of Wong and Greer, what's his name? What's the character's name? The character's name is Wong. Is Wong. Lu Wong. Harry Wong. Harry Wong. Who's Lu? Lu Sung. Lu Sung, is, Lu Sung is the is the, is old the owner. Is the old man. The Lu owner Sung of the shop. The owner. Lily Sung and Harry Wong. Really? Is that his name really? That's his name in the show. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's just hitting me now. Wow. That, that didn't dawn on me until just now. Wow. Okay. Moving them, on. Moving on. They called him Wong for most of the episode. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. But we're seeing good acting in pretty much all of these scenes. And speaking of good acting, well, we see the scene of, of Wong and Greer talking the whole time. Greer is all, all in on this. He wants the jade and, and he wants to sell it in for whatever. Right. You can see... That Wong is a little conflicted, you know. Yeah, right up front. You you know they're they're telling us the viewer that this is the bad guy right. talking this qu questionable law thing, this criminal act. Right. Where they're talking this guy into it because uh, you found his weakness. Right. He's poor. He has no money. He wants to marry the daughter of Lu Song, and. To him, it's just an old Chinese jade. They can take the money. It's hers anyway, and they can get married. Right. But, well, his attitude is being that Lu Sung is planning to donate it right. to, the, to the museum that, well, he's well, he's not going to have it anyway, so I might right. as well get the money for it. it just, right. Well, he's kind of – he's justifying it by saying it's really the daughters to inherit – and the father has no right giving it away. He's taking away the daughter's inheritance. And since right. she's going to marry me anyway, I mean, he's going a long way around to justify stealing this jade from his want-to-be father-in-law. But, you know, we have some interesting scenes coming up with it. So. Yep. Yes, we do. When we see with uh, Lois and Clark are meeting with Lu Sung. Uh, right, when we see the jade for the first time. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm imagining it's green. 
Uh, yeah, 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 I would think so. Now, I guess if you're a, one of those people that colorizes things, right. that would give you a good starting point. You'd know kind of the flesh tones, but there's an object you know that is green. Right. Kind of yeah. reminds me of uh, the from the 90s, the Batman Superman animated movie, where Joker had a kryptonite disguised as a jade statue. Oh, right, right. Forgot all about that. Yeah. Apparently, it's uh, it's valued at five hundred thousand dollars, which is a ton of money in nineteen fifty one. That's a ton of money right now. I'd take that yeah. in a heartbeat. Now we see Lu Sung here is you know, he's kind of a, a grateful immigrant. Yes, and he's presenting it to the National Art Museum as kind of a thank you to the U.S. for being so so good to him and his family. Exactly, giving him the opportunities he didn't have in his right. native land. And obviously, he doesn't care about the monetary value. The mm. the, jade, the jade is it's priceless to him, and it's been in his family for two hundred years. So for him, it seems like thank you, I guess. And I also think that you know, as far as the money goes, he's not really thinking that. He knows that his shop that he has, his antique shop, right. is well loved in the community. Makes him a decent living, apparently, a right. living, and his daughter. He was able to raise his daughter, send her to the right schools, and, you know, all these good things, and he wants to pay back the country for that. So the money, you're right, is not that big a deal, and he probably even thinks that if Wong marries his his daughter, then he'll just, you know, take over the shop, or it's maybe his he has his own. Is it his niece? It's his niece. They do say that. You're right, you're right, you're right. I just went over the thought I thought it was his daughter at first, too. You're right, you're right. But uh, since, you know, that's what's going to happen, he imagines those things. I can see where they would all, you know, think that's, you know, the jade is better that way, given as, as that show of appreciation, as opposed to selling it or something. Right. But it's hard to, you know, in, in today's world, I don't know many people that would take a half a million dollar object and give it away. Just, yeah, just like that. Yeah, especially if you're living in a little two-bedroom apartment over top of your shop. Right. I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah, Who knows? Lily, uh, when they after the explosion, uh, I don't know if Lily faints or feels lightheaded, but she needs to lie down on the couch. So <laughs> she is accidentally there when, when Wong and Greer come in to uh, steal the statue. And I don't think this is going to do the engagement any good. Uh, no, no. Not good at all. No. So he's going to have some some making up to do. So apparently she's either she's knocked out as she is dragged through the tunnel. And we find out later that the the tunnel was used. What do you say by the tongs? Yeah, by, during the Chinese mafia to kind of smuggle stuff. Right during uh, some sort of mafia Chinese mafia wars. I always meant to look that up. Was that if that has any kind of basis in reality? What's that? Because Chinese mafia wars in the Chinatowns. There's Two huge Chinatown communities in both New York and San Francisco. Right. And there might even be another one in Seattle. And I don't even know if they're still there. I mean, I'm going on memory as long time ago. Oh, well, the one in New York is huge. <laughs> right. But I, I wonder that. if there is some basis in this. Was there a time when, you know, Chinatown had all kinds of mafia leaders and, you know, well, did my- they have their own Elliot Ness and, and Al Capone in Chinatown? Might be something to look up. There's a movie there, folks. I'd go. Yeah, I would. Clark inexplicably finds all the bomb pieces in the big mess. Well, and Lois is pretty angry. She, she's uh, she's going way back to the Middle Ages. She's proposing that they be drawn and quartered. Yeah, she's pretty upset. Yeah. 
I think when Harry comes in and he's talking to Clark, he's laying it on a little thick. You know, when Clark asks if he knows anybody who would do this, you know. Yeah. Oh, if I searched my mind for a century, I wouldn't be able to come up with an enemy. For, All right, you're laying it on a little thick there, buddy. <laughs> right. You're laying the BS a little quick. Is that the scene where Clark finds the sawdust on his shirt? Yes. Right before that, Clark sees the <clears throat> sawdust. Yeah. And the sawdust was in the case, with the in jade. the little box that the jade was lying on. And it's a particular kind of sawdust that was only used for that purpose. So right. it would look different than any sawdust that might be in the shop that just got blown up. Right. Clark has seen the inside of the jade box. So True. That's true. He has so seen he the made, he made the connection right. when he saw it on his shirt. Right. And I thought he did a great job. It was almost Columbo-like. Yes. That he took, when he took the sawdust off his shirt, he took the handkerchief out of his pocket and put it in that and folded it back up. Right. And I really liked that little touch. That was, that. Drama. Now, of course, later when he shows it to Commissioner, I mean, uh, Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> right. <laughs> when he shows it to Henderson, it's an entire different, I mean, it's like somebody is now giving him three teen teaspoons full of the sawdust when originally it was like a little pinch between his finger. Right. But I thought that was funny. I mean, it made the point, you know, they had to let us know what was going on. Yeah. And by us, I mean us little kids that were watching this. But before that, I love when they go back upstairs because you can see Lu Sung is devastated. Yes. Yes. I mean, not only the, the obvious monetary value, but this has been a family heirloom, been in his family for two centuries. Right. And yeah, all of a sudden speechless. he's crushed. He's weakened by it. Right. You know, yeah, he was going to give it away, but having it taken from you is a far different experience. So he is he's just crushed. So then they go back to Henderson and Henderson wants to go after Wong immediately. But Clark kind of maneuvers him into letting Wong go. And right. Henderson has this great line about every time. And this is still true uh, in modern times. If the cops haven't solved the uh, crime immediately, the, the media gets after him. Right. And he says that. If, if I don't solve a crime in eight minutes, your paper cuts me to ribbons. <laughs> right. You know, he's finally starting to kind of not let Clark. He still is, but he's he's fighting back at least. Right. Not quite like it was in the like the talkative dummy where he right. kept saying, I'm going to arrest these guys right now. And Clark talks him out of it and says, no, right. let, let's wait and we'll get, the, we'll get all of them. So Clark, once again, is basically saying the same thing. Right. Slow down, Bill. Wait. And we'll get to the truth of this whole thing. Right. Bill suddenly suspects Lily. Right. And why not? Why not? Because the statue, she was the only one with the statue, Mm -hmm. and both she and the statue were gone. Exactly. We know she didn't do it, but you can very easily see why Henderson would think that she did it. Well, sure. If you just look at the clues as they appear on the surface, she's gone, statue's gone, something's going on. And I'd have to hold Wong for suspicion just for those reasons. Right. You can't just let him go. No. So then they go back to, I guess this is Wong's apartment. Right now, Lily wants no part of him right now. And to her, and you kind of understand, this is a betrayal of the highest order. Right Absolutely. Here. Absolutely. And he, he sits there and tries to justify it, but his justifications don't ring true. Nope. Because she's on board with, with Lu Sung uh, giving away the statue. This seems to be where the whole caper starts to go a little sideways on Wong. As all of a sudden, you know, he realizes he's not going to get his money and... Now he's kind of having second thoughts. Well, this whole thing has fallen down around him. This right. is a this is a typical case of not playing the game what if to its final conclusion. Sometimes you have to play that game. If I do this, or what if I do this? Oh, that's going to happen. Well, then if that happens, what if I do that? 
oh, then that'll happen. And he didn't do that. He just said, well, if I steal the statue, this guy gives me money and I right. get married. Right. Oh, but what if they didn't go any further than that? No. And now it's fallen down around him because not only does he realize he's been swindled, he's not going to get the money. Right. And he was probably never going to get the money anyway. Probably never going to get the money anyway. And now he's realizing it. He's not going to get the money. And his girlfriend hates him. And he has totally betrayed the the old man. And, uh, you know, it's just... In five minutes, he's lost everything. He's lost everything badly. And uh, so now he's going to try to make good. Right. Self beaten up for for trouble. Gets himself beaten up. And... Pretty good fight scene, though. Pretty good fight scene. And... I don't know about you, but try picking up another human being across your shoulder and then going down a flight of stairs. Yeah, twice. Which is probably a ladder going through that. It's a ladder going through that hole in the floor, that trap door. And he's got about a 160-pound man over his shoulder. Right. Yeah, not an easy thing to do. Just taking that first step down would have been tough. What did you think of the shot where Greer punches Lily twice? Yeah, that was amazing, wasn't it? Right. That was pretty harsh. They, uh, you could tell they didn't want to show it by putting by positioning Greer right in front of the camera between Lily and the camera. But but still, that but still was you're a, not fooling anybody with what's happening. There. No, that's a harsh scene, and the sound effect was harsh. Yes, because he reared back, closed fist, and hit her twice. Sounded like hit her right in the face twice. Yeah, really, really rough scene. Um, I wonder if this is them learning from Night of Terror. When Phyllis Coates got clocked. Got actually, she got actually really hit, yeah. Right. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. It's possible. But it could just be another thing with the directors thinking maybe right. it'll be more dramatic, like the shadow scene, or just another way to show the violence. Or, or, or maybe they just didn't want to show a man beating down a woman like that. Hitting a woman again like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, And it leaves it somewhat to your imagination, but... Like you say, it's right there on screen. Her feet are showing on the bed, her yeah. legs down. He sits on the bed right in front of her and goes, whap, whap. Yeah. And it's just, whoo. Now, whoo. in the next scene, right after this, Clark is at the window looking across the street. I almost wonder if he hears something. And then looks with his x-ray vision. Well, I well, always well, wonder, why isn't he looking around more? But he, he was, the next scene is him at the window. Right. You don't see what he's doing, but I w- almost wondered if kind of something got his attention. Do you and think it, it was the whap, whap that caught his attention? That he, maybe he was looking for something. Because mm-hmm. it was right at that time. So maybe he heard something but didn't, didn't see it. Oh, it's interesting. interesting. It's interesting. Because I'm not sure why he actually went to that window. You're yeah, right. Well, the, he's just there when that scene starts. Right. And he's looking around. He looks up a little bit. Right. Yeah. He's, he looks around outside. So it's almost like something got his attention. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the only thing I could think of. Yeah. Yeah, I really do like this next scene with Clark and Henderson. This is where kind of Henderson finally shows some backbone. Right. With Clark, and he's saying, you stick to your reporting, and I'll do the police work. You know, we've heard them in Rescue. We heard the miners say the same thing to Lois. But right. it's a little different hearing Henderson, who we see all the time, yeah, say it to Clark. And I just, I just made a note here about uh, how good uh, Greer is with people on a ladder. Oh, yeah, exactly. I was stunned, you know. Every time I see this episode, that after that fight scene, when he just puts Wong up on his shoulders and takes that first step down, I think, oh, my God, that is so hard to do. And he did it without hesitation. There wasn't a lot of hesitation no, in that was- actor at all. He huh. just threw that top up, put him on his shoulder, and stepped down through the hole onto the ladder. And he's going to kill them anyway. Why is he being so gentle with them? 
Yeah, he's knocking him out. Why didn't he just throw him down the stairs? Yeah. Well, he had to go on down there and pick him up. And if he'd broken or bled, it could have been a mess. And he needed to put him where he wanted him. So, but yeah, pretty amazing. Anyway, this tunnel does fill up with water at the speed of plot. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way a tunnel that large is filling up as quickly as it did. But it... <laughs> no, no. Good thing they were both knocked unconscious face down. Right. So they go into the apartment, and this is where Clark finds the hole. I guess he didn't spot the ladder with his X-ray vision because he. Once he became Superman, he had to look around for the tunnel somewhere. Right. So he must not have seen the ladder, but he did see the tunnel filling filling up with the water. Greer comes, then Greer comes to take Lois, and I, I just love this, this scene, Superman uh, walking around the street. Oh, it's just a great scene. Great scene. Show, shows up, starts, walking around, nobody pays any mind to him. Mm-mm. Well, some people are watching him. Right. Particularly when he leaves the sidewalk and starts walking towards the center of the street. Yeah, the crowd starts to build up. Right. And then particularly when he bends down and starts smashing a hole in the street and pulling some rubble up and he even says, tells everybody to stand back. And uh, three policemen in dark uniforms, which I assume are the really, really, really dark, dark, dark blue. Right. Not black. Right. But they hold the crowd back and then Superman makes a hole big enough to jump into. And that's a pretty good jump. I mean, you can that, tell that there, that's a pretty cool jump for George to make, even from above scene. We don't know what he's jumping down into, or probably right. a mattress of some kind, something. I don't know what he's falling into in the hole down there underneath, but it's at least six feet down. Right. Because he goes down and from the camera angle, he disappears. Uh, he disappears. So and so does the cape. <laughs> so, so the Metropolis uh, DPW is going to eat next week because now they have a hole to fill up. Now they have a hole to fill up. But uh, that's a nice little jump that George makes. And uh, I wonder if Metropolis is going to have to pay for that hole or Chinatown. Well, either way, either way, it's the city. Chinatown it's the city. It's probably just a district of the city. Yeah. So, um, well, they might be in, in one of the suburban counties. Might not be Metropolis County itself. Yeah. We're gonna assume. Like, we'll assume. It's like some big cities. You might your mailing address might be that city, but you really live in a county outside that city. Yeah, but even New York is five counties, and everything is done by the city. Right, that's true. But anyway, the DPW guys are probably sitting there. Come on, why couldn't you? <laughs> why couldn't you just use the ladder that you didn't see? Right, but yeah, nice jump though. I love it. Yes. And jumps in the water, and then he lifts the guys. Well, Lily and Wong up to the policeman yeah. waiting above ground. So, and then he asked for Henderson to turn off the water. Right. Why couldn't he do that while he was he down? He was there? standing right there next to the faucet. He could have, <laughs> yeah. And it would have been really cool if they could have figured out somehow to how to show him flying back up through the hole. Yeah, that would, that would have been cool, but yeah, but they couldn't have done that. They I would have had to have reversed the camera and it would have looked really stupid. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember how he came, but maybe he was just up. He was just up. They just showed him later being up with uh, Henderson. He came up while he wasn't turning off the water. <laughs> right, because he's up and then they talk. And that's when, I guess, uh, Greer escorts Lois out Yeah, by gun. And Superman notices and runs after Greer. And what does he call her? Miss Lane. Miss Lane. Which is what Superman calls all the other characters except Jimmy. And I love this shot of the crowd. As Superman and Henderson... Uh, you know, Henderson only asked the cop to follow him. He right. didn't ask for the whole crowd. But the whole crowd follows. Yeah, everybody <laughs> follows. And you know what I watched for this time? I watched it again, like I said, earlier this afternoon before we did this. And in that scene, I was looking at the actors in the background, right. the extras back there, to watch who jumped over and who went around the hole. 
because the hole was still there and they're like this little mob and the guys in the back didn't know exactly where that hole was. Right. So they had to be paying attention not to fall or trip on the hole or, or in the fall, hole. Or fall in. Or fall in. And I noticed that most of them went around it. Yeah. So there's this little, come on, let's go. And the police follow. And then all the uh, people in the crowd start to follow. And there's one guy, I think, that jumps over the hole. But the other characters and the background actors all run around the hole. So it's nice to see these people are paying attention to where they're going. They're, <laughs> yes. They're not like people now playing Pokemon Go and chasing Pokemon go over the side of cliffs here. Right. Right. Whew. Uh, so, yeah. So anyway, so and this is where Lois is being taken over and then they run into yeah. an alley, a yeah. dead end. And he's he's cornered. He's cornered now and he's faced by Superman, Henderson, three or four cops and the crowd. Yeah. Superman tells him to get the crowd back or Superman tells Henderson to get the crowd back. Right. And they do. There's no way out of this for Greer. There's no way out of it. But the guy's still trying to make a deal. Greer's right. trying to make a deal. Well, yeah, Hen- that's his only way out. Right, and Henderson says, no deal. And Superman goes, well, let's let's hear it out. Yeah, let's hear it out. Because Superman has a plan, and the guy makes a couple of ridiculous demands. Right. So give me all this stuff, and let me out of here, or I'll kill Lois. Uh, well, I think I was like, I'll give you the jade if I go free or something like that. Yeah, something stupid. It was, he's dead. He's ain't getting out anywhere. So then, But he has Sup- no idea who Superman is. He's the guy in the circus suit. Right. And then uh, Superman tells Henderson, wait here. And Superman yeah. runs out the other end of the alley away. And that's when Greer asks Lois, who's the guy in the circus suit? She says, it's Superman. And he says, he doesn't look too super now, does he? As Superman is running away. She says, you'll see. You'll see. And I love, I love that line. Just the way a, she says it. And the way she says it and the look in her eye and everything. Yeah, she looks like, up at him and just, you'll see. You'll see. And sure enough, he does. Hear, he jumps and flies. When he and, take, I love the shot of the crowd when he flies over them. Yeah, that's great. That's a, that's just a great because it's you just see, a sound effect. You, well, that or that, but you see the crowd. You see the one Chinese guy in the middle. He looked like they're blowing some kind of industrial sized fan on these guys. This he's trying not to fall over. Oh, they did that in twice in this episode when yeah. Superman takes off. It's just like his backwash apparently is just long and long lasting and very powerful right. pushing people almost down their clothes are off. people are holding their hats right things are going all over the place it's just hysterical it's just great i love it i love it and normally when he flies off you know you see like a couple tumbleweeds and some paper behind them right. but this time he almost knocked those those people over with he's his, knocking uh, everybody over and of course he flies and then lands directly in front of uh, greer and lois knocks the gun away and right. and saves the day it, it's just so good. It is. <laughs> I will say this, though. It, it works here, though. By episode 20, the uh, who is Superman trope is kind yeah. of trying my patience a little bit. Right. Especially in Metropolis. Is exact. Yeah. And I understand that. And I can dig that because by this point in the first season, and I think we just kind of maybe have to go back maybe to their filming schedule to right. see maybe this is also one of the first five or ten shot because obviously by Czar of the Underworld and then uh, Crime Wave, particularly, everybody in Metropolis knows who Superman right. is by, by Crime Wave. You know, you also notice these things, too, based on viewing habits, too. In 1953, these episodes are being showed once a week. Once a week, you know, exactly. If you have the box set and you're watching 26 episodes over the space of two weeks, right? you, you notice those repeated things where you exactly. might not have noticed them back then. Exactly. So, I love the fight scene. Superman knocks... Greer out of the way, catches the jade, and 
the way the gun just bends on his head. Bends when he hits him back and when Greer tries to hit Superman in the yeah. back of the head. Yeah, that's just terrific. I think Superman got a few extra, took a few extra liberties with Greer a little bit here. A little bit. And that scene, that fight scene. Yeah. That was done. Obviously, there's cuts in that. Yeah. Be- because of the way Superman knocks him, the, the jade falls down kind of in front of Lois. Superman turns, bends, and catches it before it hits the ground. While he is bending over, holding it, almost like he's posing for right. the scene, Greer hits him in the back of the head. The gun barrel bends. Superman stands up and teaches Greer that you shouldn't be hitting Superman yeah. with a gun. It was a very well choreographed and well shot scene. It really was. It really was. You know, one of the things in all of these early episodes that I have read more than one review that mention it is the ill-fitting costume of how you can always see wrinkles up under the trunks or, you know, poofiness or that the costume didn't fit. But there were several scenes in here where not only did it fit, it looked like he's just Superman, right. large and in charge. Now, granted, in the scene when he's in the basement and he's lifting up Lily out of the water and Wong out of the water, uh, his cape is flung over, I think, his left shoulder and kind of comes in front of him and hits the water a little bit. Right. So it's probably kind of heavy, right. but it stays on the back of Superman way longer than it should have right. for that scene. That was a little awkward looking, but it got away from that. And you move right into it. And, I, and to me, I overlook all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't all, even notice. All of that I overlook. I uh, did notice something with Henderson in the mix. Yeah. And this is the next scene, obviously, after all this. After Greer, the fight Greer, scene. After, after the fight Greer's scene, gone. when Greer found out how super Superman actually is. Okay, so this is the scene back now. We're back in the, the en- final. The ending scene, yeah. The ending scene, got it. Henderson, at first, Henderson is, I had to watch the scene a couple times to catch it. Henderson at first has his jacket open, and then I kind of looked away for a minute, and like then I looked back and the jacket is closed. I'm like, wait a minute, did I? Is there a continuity gap there? And no, you actually look at it while he's talking to Wong. Henderson buttons his jacket. He's butting it. Yeah, he's buttons. Like his I jacket. wonder if that was something like that was scripted, or if that's just something Robert Shane did on his own. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Nothing. It's not important, but mm. it's a cool little moment where you know you just kind of see him changing his demeanor. Yeah, and, and because he start, he starts off that scene all he he's got the jacket open, he's yelling, he's a tough cop. He's then a he, tough then, guy. Then he's softening up, he's getting a little yeah. more congenial and the and the jacket's closed. And he becomes back, yes, the a nice guy again. Yeah. But what did you think of Henderson not arresting uh Wong? Well, comic book wise, yay, good idea, good yeah. choice. Real world, no way. No. No way. Wong, you're gonna have to they're gonna have to try him with something. And probably work some sort of a deal out with DAs and stuff because he was involved with the theft. Right. And in order to testify against Greer. I think that was the deal. You don't get arrested if you testify against Greer. Exactly. And I think once Henderson asked him, because he didn't offer the deal until Until, he asked. Until after. Until he asked Wong. And Wong said, I'll do anything to make up to uh, Lu Song Lily and try to save his own face. And that's when, you're right, Henderson puts his coat back and he says, I'm going to do something I haven't done in my 20 years of Being police work. Yeah. Uh, speaking, and, of, speaking of saving their own faces, you look at, in this scene, you look at Wong and Lily and they're pretty beaten up. Yeah, they got Band-Aids, got a little makeup for bruising on yeah. their faces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a nice little nod to continuity on that one because uh, they both got beat up pretty bad. They did, and you can see it. Yeah, and that the fact that they still show that 
and a cute little scene at the end, a very end, a very cute little scene with the two kids both, on the both cheek. of the two ladies giving Bill Henderson a little a little smooch on the cheek. Yeah. And George Reeves with no glass in his <laughs> in his glasses. And it really shows when a scene like that where he, where the light just hits the frames and the frames just reflect and there's nothing in them. But right. Well, Inspector, are you trying to be a Superman? And what does that mean? Does that mean Superman usually gets all the kisses? You never see that happening in the show. Never. So see, he normally runs away. Yeah. But yeah. You know, sometimes the end of the episode lines work and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they don't. It's a matter of getting George in for his close up to wink. Right. And this one worked. Yeah, I liked it. I actually liked it. I think they had fun with this last scene because everybody seems to have genuine smiles on their face. You know, not actor smiles, but they're beaming. It's almost like that was the fourth or fifth take that George made. It's almost like he had to say that a couple times because they were laughing so much to get it out. I think after the kiss... They must have done that several times because of the look on Henderson's face right. and a genuine smile on his face. It was. No, I think it's a really pleasant, fun episode, and it ends like good Silver Age stories should with, yes. you know, the bad guy goes to jail and the good guys live happily ever after. Yes. And this was done just for the sake of uh, episode expediency, but I always thought Lily forgives him a little quickly, but... That's okay. This episode is over. We're never going to see them again. We don't see them again. And But I agree with you. I think, and her uncle, Lu Song, probably forgave him a little quickly, too. Right. But he does seem like a genuine nice guy that made a really, really, really bad decision. Right. Bad decisions have repercussions. Yes, they do. So remember that, ladies and gentlemen. No. But yeah, good episode. Good episode. And uh, actually, a couple of good episodes to talk about tonight. That was good. I don't have anything else for this one. You got anything else? I think that's about it. I think we I think we did it on these. I think we really did it. I encourage everyone, as I always do, to um, just, you know, immerse yourself into the first season of these episodes. And you really will see, as the promos go nowadays, I see promos for it. You really will see uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster Superman come to life in this first season. This is uh, Golden Age, early Silver Age at its best right here. Yes. It, and this is a good good story. You don't have any problems with this. It doesn't fall apart, really. No. It, it's, a, it's a plan of a bad guy that goes awry, and Clark figures it out. Superman saves the day. It's not a Bill. memorable episode, but it's a very good one. But it is a good one, yeah. All right, so next time, uh, Bob will be back, and we are going to cover The Human Bomb and Czar of the Underworld. So, Bob, why don't you tell the folks where they can find you? No comment until the time limit is up. (laughs) (laughs) There's a teaser for next week, ladies and germs. But yeah, you can find me, as you know, over at the Superman Forever radio podcast. That's my little Superman show. I talk about Superman over there. And that is supermanforever.com. And of course, iTunes and Stitcher and Podcast Addict, wherever you get podcasts you will find the superman forever radio podcast with bob fisher talking about superman that's my show most of the time i'm talking about little things about superman that go along with a story or a tv show or a movie uh uh, or whatever so there's a lot to talk about 78 years old now so cool so that's where you can find me where do they find you mike They, they can find me at manofscreen.patomatic.com. That's where the shows are posted weekly. You can also find me in the Facebook group. 
So you can come over, join the uh, discussion there, uh, or just search for the Man of Screen podcast. That should come right up. You, you can send email to the show at manofscreen at gmail.com, or you can send me an iTunes review. That'll help people find the show that way. So for Bob Fisher, this is Mike Zumo. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't go into any creepy hotels. Have a good one. <laughs> don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show or for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com Thanks for listening.